Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. The ability to attach is how our species thrived. We are a social species and we managed to thrive in very, very formidable environments that killed off direct competitors, Cro-Magnons, etc., that overlapped with us specifically because of our unique ability to emotionally co-regulate trauma we've been through or emotionally wounding event. And we can also create the conditions under which we can safely explore, we can be collaborative together as a species, we can take turns watching each other's backs, sharing resources. And we are all born, uh, of course, uh, years prematurely in terms of when we are, unlike other species, we take far more than a decade before we can survive on our own. And that's an exceedingly long period of time. We depend on others for uh, survival. So our ability to attach to others, to matter in the minds of another, to be seen in the eyes of another, is uh, the most important consideration. And that's why all the circuits in the brain that help with attachment are the first that go online as early as one month, the first things we're capable of doing is making eye contact and to begin to know, uh, discern people's faces. That shows how vastly essential attachment is to our species. And what we need to feel what's called a secure base so that our nervous systems function well, that we don't stay either prolonged states in sympathetic hypervigilance, uh, living off of stress hormones, is we need to feel the sense of, of others that are caring, being, there being proximity, that somebody is available to us that will help us soothe and downregulate our limbic structures. Somebody's paying attention, that we matter to other people, uh, that somebody is available who can soothe us when we're in distress and someone who appreciates us. That's what we need to function at our best, to feel that uh, entitled to, and empowered to explore the world, to take risks, and to pursue growth choices, which are always challenging. So um, given this, uh, psychologists increasingly agree that affects, essentially your emotions and feelings, are essentially a feedback system about the quality of your attachments. The reason why we have mood swings, the reason why we have profoundly different state, emotional or affect states, the reason why we have uh, strong activations in our vagal vagus nerve down the front of our body is that all of our troubling feelings and positive ones can be explained into, in relation to how well attached we are to others. They are essentially a social feedback system letting you know if you feel securely connected to others. And if you take any time to reflect on your life, you'll find that the strongest 
emotional experiences have always been preceded by interpersonal events. That's how important our social life is. In fact, Lieberman and Eisenberger have shown that our, uh, the social pain system, which is the emotional pain we feel after a breakup, after a rejection, after a social uh, negative event where we feel humiliated, borrowed from our physical pain system. And they both activate the exact same uh, circuits, especially they found that they uh, dorsal lateral anterior, the dorsal anterior cingulate circuit, uh, cortex, sorry, DACC, uh, is implied in both physical pain and emotional pain after social or interpersonal rejections. So essentially, even in uh, our, our, to the degree we feel good or bad emotionally is directly determined by the quality of our relationships. Simply put. Now, even if we are lucky and we grow up in secure family systems where we have a secure base, there are still negative events that happen where uh, our parents, caregivers are not available, where we seek support, reassurance, uh, soothing, and uh, caregivers just not attentive or available due to stresses in their own life due to issues with other siblings, due to financial challenges, due to emotional uh, dysregulation, do whatever, right? Even if we're really lucky, there still will be negative events and attachment. And unfortunately for us, the amygdala gives five times the neural weight to negative events than to positive. And uh, it's been shown that pretty much any consistent uh, failures in attachment lead to um, not only significant imbalances bilaterally and so forth, but they lead directly to the development of maladaptive coping strategies in childhood. Now, what are they? Essentially, a child who needs more attention, more soothing, more uh, support than she gets from their, the uh, caregivers available will develop some strategies to survive. The most uh, prevalent is what's known as avoidance coping. We will, if we feel our parents can't handle our sadness or our anger or our loneliness, we will start to rep repress those feelings because we've been consistently let down every time we've sought support. If we seek support for our creativity or our sexuality or any expression of ourselves that doesn't get acknowledged, we will then start to repress those and very often we will fail to integrate those emotions, those feelings, those impulses into our self-structure. Um, Many of us will develop a sense of core shame. There's something unlovable about me. Why else am I not getting the kind of connection that I need? Many will develop ritual behaviors, which are essentially the forerunners of uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Ritual behaviors can be counting or uh, obsessive movements or flicking on and off light switches, not stepping on cracks etc. that eventually turn into compulsive behaviors to create a sense of control. 
people who employ children who employ ritual behaviors in childhood invariably believe that uh, can understand the actions of their caregivers and are seeking some kind of control and they believe that a ritual behavior can give them that control over the behaviors of their caregivers which are otherwise inscrutable. Um, some of us will, on the other hand, become extremely self-reliant and avoidant and disconnect from others and essentially give up on emotion co-regulation and try to survive entirely by repressing the negative emotions entirely. Another approach is to become incredibly, increasingly ice, uh, escalating our emotions. That leads to personality disorders, disorders such as um, uh, histrionic personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline, and so forth, where people rely on certain amplified affects or emotions to get attention. And all of us are attention-seeking in childhood, and if we don't get it reliably, we will use anything at our disposal, especially our movements, our feelings, our states of being, to get some kind of attention. It doesn't matter to us if it's negative or positive. We do, we thrive on being seen in the eyes of others. That is our, the bottom line for our species to feel some sense of security. So even if your parents were angry with you, it's better than if they weren't seeing you at all or weren't noticing. So <clears throat> the long-term results of this is that when potential threats are perceived, someone who had a, an, a more secure childhood will choose in their life, will have chosen in their life secure partners who will be reliably available won't abandon them, will be there to help them process. And so these will be people who will connect with others and will approach threats in their life creatively. They won't essentially isolate, shut down, or try to deal with it all themselves, or essentially start to catastrophize. On the other hand, if a child grows up in an anxious state where sometimes love and care is available, other times caregivers are not present, disappear entirely, or are prone to significant mood swings, then the child will have attached to unreliable partners, unreliable people that are not truly available for intimacy on any sustained level. And Anxious people, therefore, will continually try to chase after support from somebody who can't give it or won't give it. And therefore, they will not connect with people who are emotionally available. They will not develop collaborative, creative approaches. And they will, because they feel essentially continuously abandoned, they will catastrophize and constantly think of the worst possible outcome. People, children who grow up in avoidant childhoods will do what they always do when a threat is perceived. They will disconnect from others. They will try to become as self-reliant as they possibly can. They will either try to repress or deny the issue, or they will essentially take the most, uh, uh, the choice and approaching it that allows them to sustain distance from others and they will grow up to fear engulfment in relationships. So <clears throat> if we want to 
essentially allow ourselves to grow into connection and to deal with threats and challenges in our life in a uh, healthy way, it's important to address any of the attachment wounds that we suffered in childhood. For me, it's the most vital thing that we address in our adult life. And to do that, in addition to, one, finding a secure base, which can be done in therapy or can be done by finding, of course, a uh, secure partner or by finding a secure relationships with friends who are exceedingly reliable. But in addition to that, and some visualization techniques developed recently by a Harvard psychologist named Daniel P. Brown, there are another approach, which is to essentially transcend the maladaptive coping strategies that lie at the heart of dysfunction and to start to uh, uh, develop mature adult connective strategies that help us when we feel threatened or when we feel overwhelmed or disappointed. And those are strategies that demand we learn how to set boundaries and state our needs. In dysfunctional family systems, or pretty much any family system, children grow up in an environment where they cannot state their needs clearly. Very often they do not get hurt, but more often they can't set boundaries. Very few children can say to their parents, I'm sorry, Dad, but right now I'm not willing to talk to you on any of these subjects because I find you to be invasive and domineering and you don't listen well, so I'll be staying in an Airbnb and minimizing my, my uh, you know, my uh, vulnerability to your uh, invasiveness in my life. Uh, very few of us can set those kind of boundaries. Very few of us can say, I can only uh, be with you for short periods, which are bookended, mom, but, and I have to rule out a number of topics or whatever that are not safe for me to discuss. And very few of us can state our needs in a really confident way which is how often we need to be left alone and how often we need connection and all that. Because essentially we are in uh, essentially hierarchies in family systems where parents who are uh, very often tired, struggling, financially stressed, generally use their, their degree of power and the fact that they are dependent on as a way to simply answer every question rather than saying, okay, I'll, we can work through this. So, I mean, some of us do look out, no doubt, but many of us grow up in family systems where there are not boundaries that are appropriate and needs that are truly expressed. And in those situations, we rely more and more on those maladaptive coping strategies where we rely on what Winnicott calls a false self where we develop ways to present ourselves in ways that we can survive and get through and essentially have the least amount of conflict until we can move on. <clears throat> this kind of false self leads to an inauthentic relationship with others in adult life. It means we're not really ever known if we continue to rely on these strategies. And to the degree that we practice uh, avoidance coping or denying 
uh, our emotional states or we practice uh, escalating behaviors or we essentially completely learn to emotionally uh, disconnect with subcortical feelings to just and just become avoidant none of those strategies are healthy for adults none of them allow us to have mature intimacy in relationships and all of those strategies lead eventually to um, relational events where we're upset where we feel wounded constantly and not taken care of so it's important for us to um, to learn how to set proper uh, state our needs and set boundaries. It what it creates a an environment where we don't have to rely on old childhood coping strategies, and all of our emotions that are strong, especially negative emotions, are indications are essentially messages from our right hemisphere telling us that we haven't essentially developed strong enough boundaries or set, stated our needs clearly and insisted that they be taken into account. Um, a couple, now we're gonna dive directly into <coughs> needs and boundaries. Um, everyone has varying needs, so assuming that anybody else knows what your needs are is simply uh, misinformed. Many of us like to believe that other people should know what we need to feel safe or what we need to feel heard or what we need to feel important to them. And everybody grows up in different family systems with different degrees of attention. And so nobody's needs are exactly the same. And the fact that there are multiple different attachment styles indicates that some people need more autonomy and more distance where other people need more reliable connection and a sense of availability. Other people need, there's infinite degrees between. So the idea that we should be able, that other people should just know that we just will find somebody out there who will naturally know what makes us feel supported is a fantasy. It doesn't work. And in my work, I find that people inevitably start making the greatest strides forward in relations and find happiness when they take the simplest developmental milestone of simply stating what they need at the beginning of a relationship before their attachment systems switch on. And we'll talk about that. Um, most, uh, it's also importantly to, important to know that trying to reason or logic or figure out consciously what your needs are doesn't work because your emotions that's what their job is what makes you feel lonely means you are not connected enough when you feel angry it means that you do not have uh, boundaries being respected when you feel sad it means you've been disappointed in a relational event all of these are messages to asking uh, to be taken into account and to essentially be learned from in stating our needs and setting boundaries. If you use your reasoning functions, your cognitive functions to try to figure out and try to say, well, I think I'm too needy. I've been told that from boyfriends or girlfriends in the past that I'm too needy. I should be less needy. 
one, that's entirely inauthentic. Two, you won't have your needs met. Three, that is essentially asking your left hemisphere to solve a problem that is entirely right hemispheric. It's your right hemisphere that determines your safety and how well connected you are, not your left. Your reasoning has, and your logical faculties play absolutely no role in determining what you need in a relationship. Or significantly diminished roles, I should say. They need to, you need to put it into language, so you're using your left. But uh, needs state what we need to, what are required to feel secure, seen and appreciated. In other words, they're based entirely on core attachment needs. Um, you will know when your needs are being met because your body will stay longer in homeostasis. You will not be, uh, you will not be in hypervigilance. You will be relaxed. You'll be able to sleep well. You will not be preoccupied wondering what's going on with partners. No, be preoccupied with how you need more space in a relationship. Um, it's important to understand that <clears throat> it takes time to discern our needs, what they really are, and that they're not something that we can figure out logically. These are based on reflecting on the emotional experiences in our relationships. That's how we determine what our needs are. It's important, as I said, to state our needs clearly before switching on our entire system, our attachment system. And what this means is not to be vague. I mean, it's certainly okay to say, I want to be in a partnership that grows and I want to eventually move into a white picket fence in the suburbs or have a bevy of children, whatever nightmare of your choice. <laughs> uh, but uh, whatever flavor of calamity you like. Uh, but that's your, of course those are, it's good to know those things, but uh, anybody who you date or meet can say, oh yeah, I like those things too, and that's not giving you any sense on whether your needs will be met. Needs are, at the beginning of a relationship, very specific. They are things like, I want someone to be available to me, for instance, on weekends. I want someone who will take me into consideration and call me uh, well before we make plans or I will be able to call them. I don't want to do uh, important connection on text. I want to do it in person or on the phone. I want to be with someone at least two or three days a week. There are no right needs or wrong needs. You simply have your needs. And your job is to make sure you know them and express them and find someone whose needs are at least in the ballpark. If you need to be with someone, <clears throat> you know, three days a week, three nights a week to feel that there's a sense of connection, to feel that there's, that someone's prioritizing you and that person only wants to be available one day a week, it doesn't matter if they are the coolest, most interesting, fascinating, wonderful human being in the world, don't continue. You'll be setting yourself up for misery and suffering. Your attachment needs are the most important thing in your life. They are what 
lie at the very core of your autonomic nervous system and at the very core of your emotional health and well-being and sacrificing your needs to try to make something work with someone is never in my experience worked and I've been doing counseling for now almost 16 years entirely based on attachment so uh, my suggestion is uh, very often people especially people with anxious attachment are terrified of stating their needs early because they believe that it will make someone run if they state their needs and I will tell you that it is true it will make avoidance run and that if you are not an avoidant it is beautiful to do that because rejection is protection I'll say that again rejection is protection finding out soon that someone is not going to be available to the degree you want that someone is not going to be capable of picking up the phone that someone is not going to be willing to prioritize a relationship it is important to know that as soon as possible and someone who is in any way shocked if you state your needs after the you know third date or whatever is somebody that it's not going to work out with anyway you'll never ever ruin a possible relationship by stating your needs it just doesn't happen it's just a fear that we have that stems back to early experiences in childhood or in socializing events where we stated a need and were rejected by you know by someone we wanted to have our needs met by and it was catastrophic and so it creates a fear of being transparent with what we need um, to the degree we feel insecure preoccupied or engulfed means that we haven't stated our needs or at least made sure that we are uh, following our needs if we diminish our needs we will feel constantly at edge we will feel either engulfed if we have more avoidance or self-reliant tendencies or we will feel preoccupied we will be looking at our phone wondering where the text is wondering why we haven't heard from the person and all of those events mean that we haven't either stated our needs or don't know our needs clearly or we haven't honored our needs by letting go of someone who is not capable of showing up for them Stating needs is vulnerable. It always with, it will invariably for some lead to the anticipation of rejection, but we have to push through that. Needs are different than wants. Wants are things like, I want someone who's funny. I want someone who's creative. I want someone who will travel. I want someone who uh, is fascinating. I want someone who uh, is good-looking or whatever. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't use those in uh, deciding that you don't want to be in a relationship, but those are not needs. Those are essentially asks that have nothing to do with whether your attachment system will be switched off and allow you to really grow in your life and explore and feel supported so you can use those all you want if you don't feel you want to pursue a relationship but my 
experience indicates that we should focus on expressing our needs and pay far less attention to those things because believe me over time you can uh, get those other wants like someone who's funny or people who are creative you can get those wants met from friends they don't necessarily have to be from your primary partner but if you find somebody who's really funny really exciting really creative and they don't meet your attachment needs you will not be happy in life period end of sentence that's how important your attachment needs are so uh, even sometimes our ethical concerns are not quite as vital I'm gonna tell you a true story I have a friend a, a guy I've known for 30 years and uh, he also is a Buddhist teacher and he married a woman uh, quite a number of years ago and it turns out she's a Trump supporter mm. and they are in a happy relationship because they have really good boundaries and they don't talk about politics stranger things have happened <laughs> you I know people who are adamant vegans who are in happy marriages with people who love eating meat uh, my wife loves eating meat I haven't touched it for 40 years but it's important that we get our attachment needs met so we'll be doing at the end of meditation that will help us determine what our attachment needs are so that we will be able to hopefully uh, state them clearly and not settle for less now boundaries <clears throat> are something different uh, if you don't get your needs met you can you won't be able to find happiness in a relationship but boundaries are necessary in every relationship boundaries are essentially the situations and topics that threaten our sense of security that are the isolated events or topics or conversations or interactions that we need to protect ourselves from uh, during when our boundaries are when we are essentially our safety is transgressed our heart rates will start to raise our autonomic nervous our sympathetic nervous system will kick in we will start to become hypervigilant or will shut down we will not feel seen or taken care of uh, we will feel invaded or otherwise now unlike needs which have to be stated very often and this is going to catch you by surprise I suspect boundaries do not need to be stated necessarily boundaries are not something that other people are demanded to upkeep it's our responsibility to protect ourselves and uphold our boundaries by which I mean if you know that a certain topic is unsafe in discussing with a family member it's your job when they bring it up to say I'm not going to talk about that I'm not going to talk about that if you keep on bringing that up I'm going to hang up the phone or I'm going to walk out of the room if you try to tell other people not to talk about certain subjects, i.e. if you try to make it their job to uphold your boundaries, this will, I don't think, come as a huge surprise. People will not listen. Hmm. Why is that? Well, once again, all human beings are attention-seeking. 
And if you tell someone not to talk about a subject, their left hemisphere might understand, but what their right hemisphere will hear is talk about that. <laughs> because now you've told them that they have a guaranteed way of getting your ire up, you know, of getting you activated. And when you're activated, you fixate on someone. You give them attention. Being irritated is a form of attention. So if you try to tell a family member who is, let's say, um, uh, has a completely different political point of view than yours, if you try to say, stop talking to me or sending me emails on the subject, they more, than, more likely than not will not listen. Because what you've done to their right hemisphere is your right hemisphere is said to their right hemisphere, anytime you want my attention, talk about Trump, you know, or Fox News. So, <clears throat> if you want to have a boundary, what you do is you know what makes you unsafe, and the moment someone brings it up, you say, I'm not going to talk about that. I won't talk about that. Let's change the subject. Uh, and it's important when you set a boundary not to justify yourself. That's another thing. Very often we grow up in family systems where there aren't boundaries. And so when we tried to set boundaries in childhood, we felt the immediate need to justify why we don't want to talk about something. And that sets us off in a path in adult life where we feel it work with bosses or with roommates or with uh, partners or with family members that when we don't want to do something, we are, we are, we are obligated to tell them why. If you try to explain a boundary to someone, you're immediately not going to get it across. And I'll tell you why. Because boundaries, like needs, are right hemispheric. They're not language-based. They're based on emotions, that situations that make you feel unsafe, unheard. You can't translate a feeling into a logical reason that will make someone understand why you need to set a boundary. Plus, it's a developmental milestone to simply be able to say, I'm not going to, be a, I'm not going to talk about that. It's far more powerful. And this is the point where I bring up an experience from my own life that I share pretty much every time I talk about boundaries in class. And if you've heard it before, I beg your forgiveness, but it's <laughs> such a perfect example. I will use it again. When I was, <clears throat> my sister and I, uh, when we were in our 30s, 20 years ago, uh, we essentially got to a place with my father, who's now lo no longer with us, but who was a narcissist, who for much of his life was a violent alcoholic, and who was uh, uh, exceedingly unskillful in most of his relationships, to say the least. Um, we finally came up with a unified front where we were not going to have any interaction with him unless he went into family therapy where we could have a safe container to talk about our issues with him in a place where we wouldn't be essentially steamrolled with his rage and so forth. So we went into family therapy and he loved it because he was the star of the show because it was always based on something that he had did or said or something like that that we had to process. But after a time... My dad started harping on my sister 
demanding to know when she was going to bring deliver him grandchildren. Mm. My sister is an exceedingly accomplished woman. She's a professor, the head of a humanities uh, center at one of the most famous educational institutions in the Northeast. She travels the world fucking lecturing on Shakespeare, has written textbooks on fucking Shakespeare. She's a fascinating human being. My dad essentially was diminishing her to ovaries on legs. She, after a while, kept on saying, stop asking me that. This is, you're not treating me with any respect, and it's also a touchy subject. I'm not going to share with you my, you know, when I decide, if I decide, you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk about that with you. He didn't, each time, week in and week out, he would, <coughs> knowing unconsciously that that would get her attention, he would bring it up again and again and again. Finally, she said the one thing that worked, which is, she said, if you bring it up again, I'm going to leave. Well, naturally, he brought it up again. She packed her purse, got her coat, walked right out of family therapy. He never brought it up again. Because if there's one thing that people love, it's attention, and if there's one thing that people hate, it's the removal of attention. If you hang up, turn away, leave, and encounter, you are creating an emotional event that will discourage them, and you will set a very significant boundary that will pay off. Even if in the short term it feels something like abrupt or rude, it's not. You're simply protecting yourself. Anger indicates that boundaries haven't been established well enough. Anger is our, uh, essentially, our right hemisphere's way of saying that someone has transgressed. And the way we sabotage setting boundaries is instead of feeling angry and then asking our angry what, anger what we need to do, what was the subject or the event that made us feel this way, and just simply knowing from that, I have to protect myself from this happening again, we instead very often get lost in resentments, where we tell the story over and over and over again of how we've been mistreated and how unfair it was, and in so doing, we fail to set boundaries. When you get angry, it means that some event in your life has felt transgressive, and you simply need to know what that event was and then ask yourself how to skillfully set a boundary around it. When you take a, essentially an adaptive action on behalf of your anger, guess what? Anger will dissipate. There's no way to remove resentment, anger as fast as simply setting a good boundary so that it doesn't happen again. When you do, you'll find that the anger will start, will stop to continually come up. Uh, so yeah, it's an inner commitment that we're not going to engage in a topic or in a situation that makes us feel unsafe. And lastly, before we now do the meditation where we're actually going to figure out our needs and boundaries we need to set, I want to read you <coughs> something from the Buddha who I think stated really what the most important qualities to look for in a friend or a lover or a partner 
and uh, essentially for me set the highest standard for <clears throat> what we should base our needs around. Buddha and the Mita Sutta said, friends, there's, there are qualities in people that are worth associating. What are these qualities? Someone who gives what is hard to give and does what is hard to do for you. They listen to your difficult words and experiences. They reveal relevant experiences to you while they keep your secrets that you share safe. During hard times, they won't abandon you nor look down on you while you're struggling or suffering. These are the qualities that we insist on when we associate with someone. So again, it's someone who listens rather than tells you what to do. They reveal helpful experiences that will normalize your suffering if you are. They will keep your secrets safe. They won't abandon you and they won't look down or judge you when you're struggling. I think those are probably the best areas to start developing needs around. But anyway, thank you for listening. I hope there was something interesting tucked in there somewhere. Now we're going to actually practice and put these ideas into practice. So, (laughs) closing the eyes. Just find your most comfortable seated position. And uh, don't try to think your way into a good posture. Just feel your way in. And just take a moment to slightly gently lift your chin a little bit higher than you normally do. The reason why we do this is simply to Uh, prevent the head from slouching in front of the body, which not only puts enormous pressure on your neck, but also, interestingly, makes it much harder to (coughs) down-regulate and also to stay in contact with your body. Oddly, when people slouch, it tends to make them disconnected mindfully from their bodies. So... We'll take a few breaths just to address the, to use the breath and the body to establish a state of ease. So take a nice full in-breath through the nose and squint your face as you're breathing in, clenching the jaw, pinching the nose, furrowing the brow, tightening the micro muscles around the eyes and then breathe out slowly through the mouth and just soften everything in the, the associated with the cranial nerves cranial nerves are the way the social engagement system communicates your ventral parasympathetic and the more you relax them 
tends to promote homeostasis. Let's take another in-breath and raise our shoulders up, trying to touch the ears and then begin to rotate them back. And when you breathe out slowly, drop your shoulders like you're just putting them to two just <clears throat> painfully heavy bags you've been lugging through an airport and you just put them down into a taxi to go to your destination and you just no longer have to carry them around. And when you pull your shoulders Back, you open up your chest, and that's where the vagal break located. That actually, vagal break lowers your heart rate. It's a instrumental in switching us back to rest and digest. When you're under stress or threat, your shoulders will contract. Your your chest will tighten. And that sends a message of vulnerability up to the insula, the right insula. When you keep your chest open and relaxed and spacious, it sends the message, I'm safe. And then for our third breath, imagine you're pulling the breath into your belly. It's bloating out as you breathe in. And then as you breathe out, just relaxing, softening. So inclining the out-breath to be as long as possible relaxes. When you breathe out, you release acetylcholine, it relaxes you, slow, lowers your heart rate. If you want to wake up, energize yourself, focus on breathing in, making the in-breaths much longer than the out-breaths. If you want to relax, do the opposite. And so we want to cultivate a state of mind similar to the way we approach the very first day of a vacation where you've arrived at a destination you've longed to arrive at. You've traveled a great distance and now you're somewhere really important you no longer 
are concerned with anything going on back home, any unresolved issues, You don't want to plan anything for the future. You've just arrived at this really, this time in your life where you can stop wanting to be anywhere else than where you are, any time else than right now. You don't want any time to pass. One of those times in life where we can really land, we're no longer racing ahead, we're no longer trying to get anywhere. There's nothing missing from our life. Everything we need is right here, right now. Nothing is incomplete. And it's like one Tibetan master said, nothing about the past is interesting or the future. There's nothing to figure out. There's nothing to do. And just try to stay present. You can stay present using sounds that you hear or the movement of the breath and the body, the subtle swelling of the diaphragm with the in-breath and then the release and the feeling of energy flowing downwards in the exhalation. You can just incline, continually incline the breath, out-breath to be as long as possible. You can count in and out-breaths, so counting one on the in-breath, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out, five on the in, and then counting down, four on the out, three on the in. Just counting from one to five and back down with one, with odd numbers always on the in-breath.
Whenever the mind wanders, that's okay. Nothing to, in any way, get frustrated by or surprised by. It's the nature of the mind to look for threats and opportunities, even if amongst thoughts, memories. So, whenever your mind wanders, just view it as a new opportunity to come home, back to your body, just relaxing back into the felt sensation, the breath, your body.
So at this point, I invite you to bring your mind to a relational experience, a time in some relationship either with a friend, with a partner, with co-worker, where you felt really either unsupported, unseen, where you felt preoccupied, constantly checking for messages that weren't arriving or calls that weren't coming in. Or conversely, where you felt really crowded, invaded, engulfed. Someone was not leaving you enough space. Try to really bring to mind that experience and connect with that feeling of what it's like to not have our needs met. And see if you can even find it in your body. <clears throat> it might be a hollowness in the chest or a tightness in the belly. And see if you can, in just being with this, ask this feeling what you would need to have felt secure, what wasn't present. <clears throat> what would it have made it feel more supported? What might have made it the other person seemed more responsive. Especially if this is an experience that's happened in more than one relationship. <clears throat> If this is a feature in any current 
relationships, all the better. We can ask ourselves how often we would need to be connected with or have our own space. How much autonomy or attention or do we need? To feel secure, it's a pattern. When there's a pattern of connection or time to ourselves, when the pattern is established, we feel our needs are met. Putting that aside and now thinking of a specific interaction with someone or tendency of interactions where we feel certain topics, situations with this person don't make us feel good. It could be someone at work who always wants to gossip. A friend that, or a family member that is intrusive. Someone who doesn't listen or take in. Our experience or our perspectives. It could be a situation with someone where we no longer feel happy to be in their present presence. Perhaps intoxication or a time when someone is no longer as good of a friend a partner, an ally, a roommate. And whatever you can find, knowing that this is an area where we have to take care of ourselves, that it's our job to refrain from these conversations, these topics, these situations again, to set boundaries. The ability to protect ourselves is the 
direct developmental milestone. It's a growth choice. It doesn't mean we're pushing someone out of a relationship. It simply means we're setting the terms through which we can engage in a way that works for us. Whenever you're ready, take your time. Try to make the transition from a meditation to external awareness as smooth as you can. <coughs> Trying to bring with you into the rest of your life any mindfulness, which means awareness of your body, as well as any thing you may have realized in your practice.